1: Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's begin today with the update I promised you about Natalie Holloway. Now, her senior high school photo might be more recognizable to most people than a photo of a politician or a B-list celebrity. Those searing blue eyes and the iconic pearl necklace. And maybe we recognize that photo because Natalie's mother, Beth, Never gave up, never gave up looking for her missing daughter, never let cops rest in the investigation, never let the public forget. Well, finally, Beth received some answers and some justice this week in the death of her daughter, Natalie. So let's revisit the story. It's 2005, and Natalie is wanting to celebrate her high school graduation. And I think we can agree she probably deserved to celebrate. She was a straight-A student on both the math and Spanish honor societies. She participated in Bible Club. She was on the dance team. She had worked hard, and she had even received the presidential scholarship to the University of Alabama. She's done all the right steps up until then, and she has all the right steps laid out before her. Well, 125 seniors and seven chaperones, they're headed to Aruba for this senior trip. And... There's safety and worry here for Beth. Aruba is one of the more safe islands in the Caribbean, and Natalie is hyper-responsible. But there is also the fact that the drinking age is 18 years old, and seven chaperones can't always watch 125 seniors. I know as a mother I would have fought this battle internally, wanting to let my child safely navigate the world, but I would also be worried about all the dangers and pitfalls that people innocently fall into. Well, Natalie heads out on the five-day trip to Aruba, the rules of the trip are that they have one check-in a day with the chaperones at their Holiday Inn hotel that rests on the beach. It's their last night on the island and Natalie, true to form, packs her bags and preps everything for their departure for the next morning before going out for the night. Well, she's all prepared and ready, and she decides there in the hotel room to leave her cell phone behind. It doesn't really have great service in 2005, and so far it wasn't ever really necessary on her other nights out on the island. She and her friends are in the casino, and Natalie's watching several people play blackjack when a new player sits at the table. He introduces himself as Joran van der Sloot from the Netherlands. And this checks out to everyone because he has a thick Dutch accent. And this next part is totally par for the course for a group out partying. They are getting tired of gambling, so they decide to move their party on down to Carlos and Charlie's bar. They've been there in the other nights that they've been out on the trip, but this isn't just a walk down the beach. It's actually a 15-minute car ride. Yoran doesn't initially join the group, But about an hour or so later, he shows up at the bar with two friends, and they gather back together with Natalie's group. I think if you could see a video of these moments in the bar, we would love what Natalie is experiencing. Her friends say she was laughing and drinking and even singing Sweet Home Alabama at the top of her lungs. Well, the bar closes at 1 a.m., And this leaves a dozen or so people exiting the doors to find either another place to hang out, or they're going to head on back to their hotel or their homes. Yoran and his friends offer Natalie a ride, and she accepts. It's just her and three men. And I get it. All your true crime sirens are going off, but this is what she does. It's just her and three men. Well, as the gray Honda is driving away, Natalie's friends say, Natalie leaned out the window, and yelled Aruba. So we all know Natalie doesn't make the 11 a.m. lobby check-in the next day and within hours Beth is on a plane to Aruba and the FBI and U.S. Embassy have been alerted. So who's the three guys she was last seen with? Well, Joran is a local Dutch immigrant to Aruba. He's well known on the island. His dad is on the fast track to becoming a judge and the police chief of the small 20 mile Island is Yoron's Godfather. So he's incredibly connected and the two brothers are friends of Yoron's. They're not as connected in the community, but people do know them as well. So after a little bit of a wild goose chase, police do eventually talk with Yoron and video evidence shows that Natalie and Yoron were definitely together that evening. In fact, Yoran admits that he was doing jello shots with Natalie and that she was very drunk, chasing those jello shots with whiskey and cokes. Yoran says he did offer her a ride and that she didn't want to go back to the hotel. He said his friends Deepak and Satish were in the front seats and Yoran and Natalie were in the back. He tells cops what kind of underwear Natalie was wearing, so he's not hiding the idea that the two were intimate in the back seat of the car. He also doesn't hide the fact that Natalie is asleep and awake during different parts of the ride. And then he says they dropped her off at the Holiday Inn. And then Yoron's dad puts his foot down and says they're done talking to police. Well, the police on the island are being less than helpful, leaving Beth waiting for hours. They're acting very aloof. They eventually tear up the statement that Yoron made to police. And police are quite obviously trying to redirect Beth to believe Natalie might have gotten tied up with a local drug cartel. Well, Beth knows this is not true. Natalie's bank account is untouched. She didn't have a debit card on the island. She brought some cash and that's it. And Beth and her ex-husband Dave, okay, that's Natalie's father, and he's now arrived on the island. Well, the two realize they're going to have to do their own digging because they aren't getting much help. And Yoron is obviously being protected. They visit Yoron's school where the headmaster knows the whole story already. In fact, it seems everywhere they go, people are a few steps ahead of them. The headmaster floats the idea that Natalie went swimming in the ocean because she wanted to see sharks and that she eventually drowned. Well, Beth doesn't believe this idea either. Eventually, Beth and Dave watch the video footage of the night Euron claims he dropped Natalie back off at the Holiday Inn. They scour the footage. There's no Natalie. They know Natalie did not return to the hotel Beth and Dave do not let this go. They begin actively speaking with the press back in America, retelling Natalie's story, begging for help. Well, finally, on June 9th, 10 days after Natalie goes missing, Yoran, Depak, and Satish are arrested. Cars are searched, residences are searched, and Yoran gives a new account of that night. He points the fingers at the brothers, saying they took Natalie to the hotel after dropping off Yoran. Then a couple days later, Yoron changes his statement again, saying, yes, he and Natalie had sex at his home and at the beach, and that Deepak picked him up that night at the beach, and that they left Natalie there. And they have no idea what happened to her after that point. And then the back and forth for the next few months continues. Yoron's dad is arrested for manipulating the investigation, and then he's released. The brothers are released due to a lack of evidence, and then they're rearrested. And finally, on September 3rd of 2005, all three are released. Yoron and the brothers walk free. Now you would think this is probably the end for Beth, but she just keeps digging. And to be honest, arrogant Yoron can't keep his mouth shut. In 2007, he writes a book detailing his side of the story with Natalie. Then in 2008, Yoran does an interview with Fox News saying he sold Natalie into a human trafficking ring. He later retracts the interview, but he just can't help himself. See, in 2010, he contacts Beth directly. He promises that he will tell her what happened to Natalie if she will pay him $250,000. Of course, Beth agrees, who wouldn't? What mother would not agree to that? Because she wants to know what happened to her daughter. She pays Euron the initial $15,000 down payment, and he tells her that Natalie is buried underneath the foundation of a house in Aruba. Well, it's a lie. That house wasn't even under construction when Natalie went missing. But this blackmail scheme is key to what eventually brings Euron down. All right, we're going to fast forward. By now, it's May 30th, five years to the day that Natalie disappeared. And Yoron is now in Lima, Peru, hanging out at a casino again. He meets a woman named Stephanie. After playing blackjack together, they head to his room. Stephanie figures out that Yoron is connected to Natalie. She starts to panic. And then Yoron panics and he kills her. He beats her with a tennis racket and also strangles her. Just a few days later, police track Joron down in Chile and he openly confesses to killing Stephanie. Then, 25 days later, a federal grand jury in Alabama finally indicts Yoron on extortion charges. Okay, so remember that blackmail scheme. And I want to just pause here and remind you guys, this is all happening in 2010, 13 years ago. Sometimes justice can be so slow. All right, let's pick back up where the story was. It takes two years. And in 2012, a Peruvian jury sentences Yoron to 28 years in prison for killing Stephanie. He's finally locked up. And that same year, Natalie's family has her legally declared dead. And then Natalie's family waits. They wait for Yoron to be extradited to America. They wait to hear someday the truth about their dear Natalie. And then last week, that happened. Yoron is now 36 years old and he has been extradited to Alabama to face those extorting and defrauding charges. On Wednesday, he pled guilty to the charges. In exchange, he will serve 20 years for the financial crimes, and those years will run simultaneously with his remaining murder sentence in Peru. So I'm going to play the confession for you, but I just want to warn you that this audio is graphic.
2: Plus, uh, she, she asked to go back to her hotel, but I was just Trying to get dropped off a little bit uh, further away from our hotel, so we could uh, walk back to our hotel, and I might still get a chance to to be with her. Okay, that's so what I was hoping for. Okay, so what happens? Um, yeah, Deepak drops me off at a at a place uh, a little right of the of the Marriott hotel, known as the Fisherman's Huts. Um, this place. Uh, it's not so far from, you know, the next hotel is the Marriott, and the next hotel after that is, is another Marriott, uh, which is a timeshare, and then it's the, the Holiday Inn. Um, well, we, we walk along the beach.
0: Right, uh, um, do Deepak and Satish get out, come with you? Uh, what, what happens Deep uh, uh,
2: Deepak and Satish leave. Uh, they, uh, they leave. Uh, they go back to their home. I assume they go back to their home. Um, they get in their car and they leave. Uh, I'm actually with uh, I'm actually with uh, with Natalie walking along the beach. Uh, I find a space uh, before we get to the before we get to the Marriott hotel where I lay her down. We lay down together in the sand, and uh, we start kissing each other. I start I get her to kiss me again. We start kissing each other. And uh, I start feeling her up again and she tells me no. She tells me she doesn't want me to, to feel her up. Uh, I insist, I keep feeling her up either way. Um, and uh, she knees me, uh, she ends up kneeing me in the crotch. Uh, when she knees me in the crotch, uh, I get up uh, on the beach and I kick her ex- extremely hard in, in the face um, yeah, she's laying down uh, Unconscious, possibly even uh, Even dead, but definitely unconscious And uh, I see uh, right next to her There's a there's a huge uh, cinder block Laying on the beach
0: When you say cinder block uh, Looking at the walls of this uh, place Is it like
2: those? The exact same cinder blocks I see a, a huge cinder block laying on the on the beach, uh, I take this and, uh, yeah, I I, I smash her head in with it completely, Uh, yeah, her face basically, you know, uh, collapses in, even though it's dark, I can see her face is collapsed in, Um, afterwards, I don't exactly know uh, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm scared, I don't know, what to do, uh, and I um, <clears throat> I decide to to take her and uh, uh, to put her into the ocean. So I grab her and I I half uh, half pull and half walk with her into the ocean. Um, I uh, I push her off. Uh, I walk up uh, up to about my knees into the ocean and I push her off into into the, into the, into the sea. And um, yeah, after that, I, I get out, I I walk home.
1: And now, if it's the truth, we finally know what happened to Natalie. Okay, I'm trying to put myself in Natalie's mom's shoes here. There's got to be elation just hearing him finally confess after nearly two decades of lying. But I think I would also be physically ill with his graphic retelling of the events. And I might even feel a little bit proud of Natalie for fighting back in the last moments of her life. And I know for sure I would definitely ache for Stephanie's family. He brutally murdered Natalie and Stephanie because he wanted his way with them. In her victim impact statement, Beth plainly laid out her feelings about Yoron. She said, you are a killer, and I want you to remember that every time that jail cell door slams. You look like hell, Yoron. I don't see how you're going to make it. She then told reporters outside the courtroom that as far as she is concerned, it's all over. She said Yoron Vandersloot is no longer the suspect in her daughter's murder. He is the killer, and she believes Natalie's case is solved. Now, you're probably asking, where does he serve the remaining time? Well, that's going to be in a Peru prison. He will likely never see a U.S. prison. His federal charges will run their course while he is serving his murder charge and cocaine trafficking charge in Peru. So you're probably asking about the murder charges in Aruba. Well, Ann Angela, she's an Aruban spokesperson. She told CNN that Natalie's case remains open in Aruba. So she didn't say yes or no to possible charges. She did say authorities would review the statute of limitations, and they would also review the confession and court documents from America. So maybe he will get charged for Natalie's murder. Three days after Yoran confessed, it would have been Natalie's 37th birthday had she lived through that senior trip. In her Mountain Brook High School yearbook, Natalie's senior quote came from an old Leonard Skinner song called Free Bird. It says, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? For I must be traveling on now. There's too many places I haven't seen. Fly high, Natalie. And well done, Beth. All right, let's update a murder and attempted murder story out of Lake Tahoe, California. It was June 5th of 2021, and it was a beautiful afternoon in Lake Tahoe. There's blue skies, the sun is shining, and there's stunning scenery. Robert Spohr and wife Wendy Wood, they've been together for over 50 years and married for 45 of those years. They had traveled the world together, even living in Afghanistan and Hong Kong in the 70s and 80s. And they weren't just each other's sweethearts. They also owned a real estate business together. Wendy and Robert lived just off Highway 89, and that's the main road that runs along the west shore of Lake Tahoe. And they built this respite home together 17 years prior, and you guys, it's absolutely beautiful. I'll include the pics in the social media posts of that gorgeous home in Lake Tahoe. And this home was filled with family photos that are weaving a tale of a happy and close-knit family. Just across the street is the popular beach, Hurricane Bay. And this area of the lake has a beautiful bike path that passed right in front of Robert and Wendy's home. And I'm telling you guys, this is a safe community. Robert and Wendy lived peacefully. But on that day, video footage showed a killer arriving to their home. A hooded and masked man wearing a black backpack and white jogger pants walked up the bike path in front of their home and then ran up the driveway. And remember this is 2021 in mask heavy California. It wasn't that weird to see someone walking a bike path with a mask on because people still feared COVID-19. Well, Robert and Wendy weren't even home when the killer entered that house. And the killer was patient. He waited. Eventually the two returned to their home about five hours after the killer entered the residence. And that's when the killer struck, shooting Robert dead on the second floor of the home, where it seemed he was relaxing near the fireplace couch and flat screen TV. Then the gunman found Wendy in the bathroom and shot her twice in the head before fleeing. And it can only be assumed he thought he had killed both the homeowners successfully. Wendy was bleeding, but just unconscious. She hadn't actually died. So critically wounded, Wendy finally regained consciousness and called 911. When the operator answered the 911 call, it was just silent. Wendy couldn't speak because of her injuries. Out of courtesy and protocol, officers visited the home. There they found the grisly scene and they pronounced Robert dead and they rushed Wendy to the hospital. As investigators worked the case, Wendy spent the next month in the ICU and then weeks rebuilding her strength In long-term rehab, she was relearning basic skills like feeding herself, walking, and fluidly speaking. Investigators quickly surmised from the crime scene that the attack was premeditated and targeted. Nothing was taken. Nothing was disturbed. And despite investigators having some promising suspects, no arrests were made in the case. Wendy's daughter, Adrienne, told SFGate eight months after the murder and the attempted murder, that her mother was the strongest person she had ever met. She was certain that the love between her and her dog Maggie is why she even regained consciousness on that day of the murder. She believes Maggie, with her tenacious personality, nudged and licked Wendy awake so that she could make that silent 911 call. Adrienne also said that the single biggest impediment to her mom's healing is not knowing who did this to her and to Robert. She said if someone could be arrested, she might be able to move on past the grief of losing her husband. Adrian also said that the only solace she found in the horrific events of that day is that her dad died instantly, knowing no pain. And she admitted that she hoped her mother never regained her memories from that day. She obviously acknowledged that if her mother did regain her memory, that it might lead to the killer, but she feels the pain might be too much for her mother to remember the events. Clearly, Wendy was suffering with the damage from the gunshot trauma and with the loss of her husband, because just one month following the interview where her daughter finally shared her thoughts, Wendy took her own life. Now I can't imagine the pain this family has felt. But on Friday, Placer County Sheriff's Office arrested two people in connection with the murder of Robert and the attempted murder of Wendy. 49-year-old and former Major League pitcher Dan Serafini was arrested in Winnemucca, Nevada and is being held there on a no-bail warrant. It seems Dan works there part-time and investigators had been tracking him for months. And then 33-year-old Samantha Scott was arrested in Las Vegas. So here's where it gets a little complicated. Dan is the one who has the strongest connection to Wendy and Robert. He is the son-in-law to the two, married to their daughter, Aaron. And Samantha apparently worked as a nanny briefly for the family, so she would have had some connection to Robert and Wendy as well. Now, this arrest does answer one question of how did the killer enter the home without force or being detected? If the killer's been there dozens of times because he's the son-in-law, then he would be able to enter without force or even leaving a trace. Now, the Placer County Sheriff's Office said in a statement that both Samantha and Dan will face a murder charge in the death of Robert and an attempted murder charge for the attack on Wendy Wood once they're extradited. In a separate but maybe connected case, The Humboldt County Sheriff's Office in a Facebook post said Placer County will be filing child abuse and endangerment charges against Dan. As of recording, there has not been an explanation about those charges and if for sure it's going to be Placer County or Humboldt County that files those charges. So we're just going to have to wait and see. Now, more on Dan. Dan. He was drafted into the major leagues in 1992, and his career as a pitcher spanned 11 years with multiple teams that included the Twins, the Cubs, Padres, Pirates, and the Reds. He finally finished his MLB career with the Rockies. And a quick scan of what appears to be Aaron Spores' Facebook account shows wedding pics of Aaron and Dan from 2011. And sadly, so many happy photos in those early years of wakeboarding on Lake Tahoe, vacationing together, and a couple of photos of Dan in a Canadian baseball league uniform. And I will say, and you can interpret this however you want, the most recent years photos are dominated by horses, like competitive show horses. There are no pics of Dan and Aaron together after 2019. And that's two years before the murder. But in January of 2011, there is a photo in the Facebook library on Aaron's account that has a pic of a man's chest with a tattoo that reads, Aaron. And the photo description says, the forever spot over his heart, I love my husband. Obviously, something must have gone tragically wrong in this marriage. And a Facebook profile for Sam Scott, so remember the girl arrested is named Samantha Scott. I found a Facebook profile for Sam Scott and it shows pictures of Samantha and it shows her involved with horses as well. So maybe there's a connection there between Sam or Samantha and Aaron, Dan's wife. We're just going to have to see. I will say this, I'm intrigued I think there's a lot to find out in this case, and this reporting is still so early. So I'll keep you updated as more comes out. I think it's going to be interesting. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. Give us a follow on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Our little part of the true crime community is still so new, but you listeners have been great. I'm so excited for it to grow. So a big thank you to you guys. And like I said on Thursday's episode, if you're coming to the Murder With My Husband live show in Brea, California next week, make sure you say hi. I'd love to meet you. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.